You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This Sunday is the third Sunday in Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it's a time when Christians traditionally focus our hearts and our minds on the coming of Jesus into the world and what it means for us. And so this Sunday and next Sunday which is Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at the events which led up to the birth of Jesus, which are recorded in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and particularly we're going to be looking at two specific people and how they reacted to the news that Jesus had come into the world to save them. So we'll begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this great message. Lord, this message that you are that you are good, Lord, that you are faithful, Lord, that you are righteous and holy. And Lord, as we come to Christmas time, Lord, we want to keep these things in our mind. We want to remember who you are, and we want to remember what you've done for us, Lord. And so I pray that today, as we consider the song of Mary, Lord, that truly you would help us to understand what Christmas is about, and that it would be something that we rejoice in and celebrate in, in our hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the ways that you know that it's Christmas time is the music, right? You hear it in the stores, you hear it uh, in all kinds of places. As you go around, there's Christmas concerts for the kids. But you know, not all Christmas songs are created equal. So for example, every year, my wife likes to uh, put on Christmas music and decorate the house with our kids. So a few years ago, she put on this Christmas CD. It was like a children's Christmas CD. And the kids were decorating. And then after a few minutes, my four-year-old daughter came into the kitchen where we were standing, and she had a very concerned look on her face, and she asked us, why was that boy's mommy kissing Santa Claus? Because you got to understand, so she had heard this song, right? Like, uh, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Now, that's, we all tend to think, you know, that's just a very nice song. Think about this. We think that's a nice song because we understand the premise of the song, which is that this child's dad was dressed up in a Santa outfit, and therefore the kissing by the mother was absolutely appropriate. Now, but think about this. If you don't have that piece of the puzzle, it's a very different song, isn't it? Uh, It's a very confusing song and and actually kind of disturbing because, really, it's the story of a, a young child excited about Christmas, really excited, you know, can barely sleep, and comes out of his room late at night and stumbles upon his mom kissing a man who's not his father. And this child comes out maybe hoping to see Santa, and then he does, but Santa's a monster, right? Like Santa is putting the moves on his mom. And it's just incredibly traumatic if you were a child and you come out on Christmas Eve and this is what you find. Not only is the mother being unfaithful to the father, But on Christmas, of all days, mom, really? And with Santa? 
Talk about disillusionment. I mean, that's what this is. Like, where's dad? And how could mom do this to dad? In his own house on Christmas. And, and Santa, he's just a monster, right? He's ripping apart our family. And it's like, you know, Santa, just keep the presents, man. All I want for Christmas is my family back. I want you to take your hands off my mom. There's other bad songs out there. When you think about them, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Like if you think about this song, what is it? It's a song, it's essentially telling a story of a reindeer who is bullied by other reindeer and the only time they want him around is when they find him useful, right? Like when, they, when he can do something for them. So basically, they treat him terribly all the time. But then when they find a way that they can exploit him, then they, they take advantage of him and use him. Furthermore, Santa, who apparently knows everything, right? Like he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. And he keeps a list of, of rights and wrongs. Well, then that means that Santa should have known about this, right? Like he should be aware of this bullying that's going on. And if he is, well, then that means that he didn't do anything about it, which makes him an even worse person, right? So Rudolph is experiencing prejudicial treatment. He's being judged not by the content of his character, but by the color of his nose. And the only time that, that anyone pays attention to him is when they realize that he has a skill that they can exploit for their own benefit. It's really a terrible song. But there are some really good Christmas songs out there, songs written by people who have actually understood what Christmas is about. And as a result, they've been changed, they've been transformed, and there's nothing they can do to stop themselves from erupting in an explosion of praise and rejoicing. They say things like, joy to the world, not because it's the, the season to be jolly, not joy to the world because there are chestnuts roasting on open fire, but joy to the world, the Savior has come, the Savior reigns, no more will sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns Thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. They sang rich theology. They sang wonderful truths. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Born that man may no more die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give us second birth. That's a song written by somebody who actually had something to sing about. And the very first Christmas song actually is found. That's what we read in our text today. The very first Christmas song is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And it was sung by Mary. It's known as the Magnificat because it begins with the words, my soul magnifies the Lord. So today I'd like to look at this very first Christmas song because in it we see what Christmas is really about and what we ought to do and sing about at Christmas time. So the title of today's message is How to Sing at Christmas Time. Let's begin by looking at what happened which led to the singing of this song. And that happens in the, earlier in the chapter starting in verse 26. So I'll read to you 26 to 29. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So Mary is the first person whose life was absolutely changed by the Christmas message. And the way that Mary responded to the news about Christmas gives us a model for how we ought to respond to the gospel. So this message, it began with a divine proclamation that God had shown her favor. That's what it says over and over. God has shown you favor. Favor, by the way, is defined as an act of unusual kindness, support, and or approval. The angel showed up to Mary and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And when Mary heard this, you know, she's, 
she, it says that she was greatly troubled by these words. She was confused. In other words, she's looking over her shoulder like, are you sure you're talking to me? Like, uh, I don't think you're talking to me. You might have the wrong address or something. You might be looking for one of my neighbors because highly favored one, that doesn't describe me. I'm nobody special. I'm just a peasant girl. I think you've come to the wrong house. But the angel said, no, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. In other words, out of all the universe, out of all humanity, the eyes of God have fallen on you, Mary. He has chosen to place his favor on you. And here's what that means for Mary. We read in verse 31. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You know, the word gospel, it means a proclamation of good news. That's what this is. This is a proclamation of good news, that God is now going to fulfill his long-standing promise that one day he will bring into the world a Savior. This name Jesus, by the way, in Hebrew, it means God who saves, God who rescues, God who redeems. Now look at how Mary responds in verse 34. She says, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? So when Mary heard this news, she had trouble accepting it. That's what I want you to see. She had trouble accepting it. She says, wait, no. I mean, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. Now, the fact that Mary was a virgin, this presented a problem technically, but it also presented a problem practically. Now, on the technical side, I don't think I need to explain to you how babies are made, but let's just say if she's a virgin, she wasn't going to be having any babies anytime soon, according to the technical issue there. How can she be pregnant if she's a virgin? But on the other hand, there's also a practical problem with her being a virgin. See, the practical problem was actually probably the part that bothered Mary more than the technical problem. You see, to be a virgin meant that Mary wasn't married. And to get pregnant before she was married, well, that would mean a lot of problems for her, especially in that society that she lived in. The word gospel, it means a proclamation of good news, but you got to understand, when Mary first heard this, it probably didn't feel like good news to her. She wasn't sure if this was actually good news. Try to put yourself in her shoes. Here she is, a young woman. She's just met a great guy. He has a job, which is also very exciting, and uh, he asks for her hand in marriage, and she says yes, and now they're engaged, and she's excited. She's planning her wedding, sending invitations, doing all the stuff that you do to get ready for your wedding. It's a very exciting time in her life. It's a time of anticipation and joy. This is something that many young women grow up looking forward to and dreaming about. Mary, in other words, is living the dream. She's got her whole life ahead of her. She's got her whole life planned out, how it's all going to go, and everything's going according to plan until this happens. And now what is this? Why? I mean, it's nice and all. It's kind of flattering that God chose her, but she lives in a small town. People are going to talk. They can do math. And who's going to actually believe her if she tells them this story that, oh, well, you know, it's not what you think. It was actually a miracle. They're going to say, yeah, yeah, some miracle that must have been. People are going to accuse her of sleeping around. They're going to call her all kinds of nasty names. In a shame and honor society like that one, people are going to shun her. She will be truly alone. Will her parents believe her? What about Joseph? Is he going to believe her? Is he going to believe this story? Is he going to leave her? Because if he leaves her, then she's going to be a single teenage mother raising a baby all by herself. From Mary's perspective, it's kind of hard right now to tell if this baby is a blessing or a curse. And there's a sense in which Mary had no choice in this whatsoever. God chose her. He didn't ask her permission. He didn't run this by her to make sure it was cool with her before he decided. No, he just sovereignly chose. Mary, you're the one. And he placed his favor upon her. 
And yet there is a sense in which Mary does have a decision to make, a choice in this matter. She can't choose whether or not she will be the one who's chosen for this, but she does get to choose how she will respond to it. Will she embrace it? Will she see it as God's calling on her life? Or will she drag her feet? Will she grumble? Will she moan and complain and be miserable and hate this the whole time that this had to happen to her? Saying things like, you know, I had my whole life planned and then this happened. God had to come and ruin it by giving me something I didn't ask for that I didn't necessarily want. This isn't how I envisioned my life. Mary didn't get to choose whether or not this would happen to her. But she absolutely did get to choose how she would react to it. Would she embrace it? as God's calling upon her life? Or would she grumble about it? Would she hate it? Would she be miserable about it? Because it's not what she had planned and pictured for her life. Now the same thing is true for me and you as well. There are a lot of things in this life that we don't get a choice in whether they happen or not. There are a lot of things that happen to us that we don't get to choose. We don't get to to have a say in the matter. Sometimes things happen that you would absolutely not have chosen for yourself. Sometimes things happen which which don't match up with how you envisioned or pictured your life going. And the question is, how will you react in those times when you get that diagnosis, when that thing happens to that loved one of yours, when that accident or that unexpected thing happens and it changes the course of your life? You didn't get to choose in that. You didn't get a say in that that would happen to you or not, but you do absolutely get to choose how you respond to it. And that's the same boat that Mary's in. At this point... She's struggling to understand what it means that she has found favor with God. She's struggling to understand how this so-called good news is actually good news for her. And one thing's for sure, Jesus is coming into the world and is absolutely going to disrupt her life. It's going to change the course of her life forever. And let me tell you this, the same thing is true for you. If Jesus comes into your life, he will disrupt your life. And it very well may change the course of your life forever. And that worries some people. They wonder, they're not sure if they want that, just like with Mary. But the angel says to her this in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand here, what the angel is telling her is not just how she's going to get pregnant. More importantly, what the angel is telling her is how she is going to be able to do this thing that God is calling her to do. See, she's wondering, how will I be able to do this? How will I be able to go through with this? How will I be able to walk this road that God has laid before me? Maybe some of you wonder about the same thing in your own life. God, I see the path that you've laid before me, but I don't know if I can do it. It seems like too much. This seems too difficult. I don't know if I have what it takes. But here's what God said to Mary. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. See, in the Bible, when you read this phrase, the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, it refers to God enabling and empowering someone to do something that he has called them to do. So there are three relationships, just to give you a kind of a quick overview. There are three relationships that we read about in the Bible that the Holy Spirit has with people. It's just a quick rundown of what those are. The Holy Spirit is with all people. He's with all people, bringing about conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. Then you have another level where the Holy Spirit is in some people, not all people, but those who are believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus. The Bible says that when you do that, when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into you and takes up residence in you like a seal. It's like a down payment that he has purchased you and you are his. And the Holy Spirit within you will lead you and guide you and remind you of what Jesus said and change you and transform you from the inside out. But then there's this third 
relationship that the Holy Spirit has with people in the Bible. So throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, we read this interesting phrase that the Holy Spirit came upon certain people at different times. And it's always for the purpose of empowering them to do what God has called them to do. So for example, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon in order to empower him to fulfill his calling to lead the people of Israel. Later on, the Holy Spirit comes upon David to empower him to be king of the people. The Holy Spirit comes upon the prophets later on to help them do their job of conveying the message of God to the people. And then when Jesus sends out his disciples, his apostles, he tells them, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And so when Mary is told that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, Understand, this is God's word of reassurance to her, that he is going to give her the strength to do what he is calling her to do. It's not going to be easy, but he will be with her, and he will give her everything that she needs to walk this path that he's laid before her. Do you know that that same is, thing is true of you? That God, if God has laid a certain path before you, you might feel like, I don't know, I didn't choose this, I'm not sure I want this, I don't know if I like this, I didn't ask for it, it seems too difficult, I'm not sure I have what it takes. But I want you to know this, that God would absolutely encourage you and say, I will enable you and I will empower you. You just start walking. I'll give you the strength that you need to keep going. The angel told her in verse 36 and 37, he said, Behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, she has also conceived a son. And in the sixth month, she is in the sixth month with her who is called barren. Nothing will be impossible with God. Mary has this relative named Elizabeth who's older than she is. She was told that she would never have kids, but now here she is, six months pregnant. Mary, the angel says, you should go talk to her. It'll probably strengthen your faith because nothing is impossible with God. So how does Mary respond to this life-changing news about Jesus? Well, the first thing we see is that she considers it. She asks questions. She openly expresses her doubts and her concerns. I want you to know that Jesus always encouraged people to do this. He never sought to coerce people. He never sought to pull on their heartstrings and get them, kind of manipulate them emotionally into making a decision. He was always honest with people about the cost of discipleship. But he also promised that if they were willing to step over that line and say yes, that he would be with them and he would absolutely give them everything that they needed to follow him down the path that he had called them to go down. The next thing that Mary does is after she considers the message, we see that then she surrenders completely. After wrestling through her doubts and her fears and her questions, Mary gets to the point in verse 38 where she says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. What is she doing? She's surrendering to the will of God. She's embracing this calling and everything that goes along with it. She's saying, God, if this is the path that you've chosen for my life, then so be it. I will embrace it and I'll embrace everything that comes along with it, both the joys and the hardships. And I want to ask you today, have you gotten to that point in your life of fully surrendering your life over to God? That point where you say, God, whatever the cost, whatever it might look like, have your way in my life. Lord, let my life be, let it be like a penny in your pocket for you to spend wherever and however you please. Jesus told us that it's only in surrendering our lives that we find true life, right? In other words, the more that you resist, the more that you hold on to your vision of what you want your life to look like, the more you will be frustrated and you'll be full of bitterness eventually. But the more you say, Lord, not my will, not my agenda, but your will, your plans, let those be done in my life, that is when you experience freedom and joy and fulfillment, even if it includes difficulty. It's when you surrender completely and fully over to God. The next thing that Mary does is, after she considers, after she uh, surrenders, then she seeks out 
community. She goes and spends time with Elizabeth, her relative. That's in verses 39 through 45. Mary tells Elizabeth about this thing that happened with the angel. And rather than scoffing at her and saying, yeah, right, Elizabeth believes her. Elizabeth believes her and she encourages Mary to trust in God and to embrace what God is doing in her life. For Mary, talking with Elizabeth, another believer, it brings clarity, it brings confirmation. In other words, Mary couldn't do this on her own. She realized she needs other believers to talk with and pray with and worship with. And let me tell you this, so do you. You do too, all of us. When we're struggling, a lot of times, you know, we don't like to tell people that we're struggling until we've already gone through it. And then we tell them, oh, you know, I went through a really dark time. But notice this, Mary, she doesn't go out and look for a new community. She goes with the community that God has already placed in her life and already provided for her. The writer to the book of Hebrews, he encourages us, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And it says, consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. So I don't want you to miss this next important step. After considering, after surrendering, don't forget this next step of seeking out believing community to strengthen you and encourage you on this journey. And the last thing that Mary does here is that she sings. She sings, and her song begins like this. Her song says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You see, when Mary first heard the gospel, she had trouble accepting it. She had trouble believing it. She's not sure if this is really good news. But I want you to see now that seems to have changed. Now in her soul, in her spirit, she seems to have been moved to the depths. Before she surrendered to God out of faith. But now the way that she feels about it has also changed. And do you know that's also often the way it works with us? First you surrender to God in faith. And then the feelings follow. So what was it that brought about this great change in Mary's feelings? I'll tell you, it was, it was visible in this song. You see it. It was the realization that she came to of the amazing truths which she sings about in this song. In verse 48, she says, you know, my soul rejoices, my spirit rejoices because, for, the word for, which means because. And then she says, why? It's because there are certain things which she has come to realize about the Christmas story, realize about God, that have changed the way that she feels. And here's what she sings about, three things. She sings about God's attributes, God's purposes, and God's sufficiency. God's attributes, the first thing that she mentions is that God is mighty. She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Do you know that Christmas is a manifestation of God's might and power? The virgin birth, God coming into the world, taking on human flesh, dying on a cross, defeating death and rising from the dead. It's the ultimate display of God's might and power. Mary had a hard time believing that it could be true at first. But when she thinks about it logically and rationally, she says, okay, if God is all-powerful, if God can do anything, if God creates the world out of nothing, then why couldn't he do this? Of course he could do this. He's mighty. Let me ask you, do you believe that God is mighty? Many of us believe it in theory, but when it comes to practical matters of our lives, I think we have trouble sometimes believing that God can really do anything. Christmas, though, is a reminder of God's might and his power. The second attribute she mentions here is that God is holy. The word holy, it means that he is absolutely opposed to sin and to evil. Let me tell you this, in order to understand Christmas... In order to understand what Christmas really means, it is essential for you to understand that God is holy. The holiness of God, on the one hand, it is beautiful, it's majestic, but on the other hand, it's terrifying. You see, for me and you, if we were to encounter the holiness of God, it would be like a mosquito flying into Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is beautiful, but it's also powerful, and it would absolutely wipe us out because God is holy, and we are not. 
And that is the reason why Jesus came. Because we have sins and we have flaws and we have failures. And God's holiness requires that he do something about it. He can't stand by idly. He can't ignore it. There's no way around it. But the message of Christmas is that in spite of your sins, in spite of my sins, this holy God loves us and he came to save us. And the judgment that you deserve, he came and he took it upon himself. To consider the holiness of God at Christmas is to remember and to think about the incredible lengths that he went to in order to save you. Think about this. The God for whom the universe and our planet is just a speck. He became a speck. The angel told Mary, you will conceive and this thing which you conceive will be the Holy Son of God. That means that this great and mighty God didn't just become a baby. It means that he became a single cell at one point. The weakest form of life in all of the universe. The God for whom the universe is but a speck. He became a speck because he loves you. That's the message of Christmas. It's a reminder of the length which God went to in order to save you. And the third attribute Mary sings about is God's mercy. And if this attribute isn't here, then we are lost, let me tell you. If God is only holy and mighty, but he's not merciful, then there would be no hope for us. He would wipe us out. He would be justified in doing so. But the good news of the gospel is that God is holy, he is mighty, and he is merciful. He gives us grace. Grace means undeserved favor. All three of these attributes are important. And in the Christmas story, they come together and they shine brightly. You see, because God is holy, he must do something. Because he is merciful, he wants to do something. And because he is powerful, he can do something. And he has. As you think about the Christmas story, consider what it means for you about who God is and how he feels about you. And what great lengths he has gone to because of his love for you. After mentioning his attributes, she talks about God's purposes. Mary sings about the promises and the purposes of God throughout the ages. She has gained this perspective that what God is doing is bigger than her. It's bigger than just her life. It's about the whole world. This is the fulfillment of what God has been doing throughout all of history. You see, if Mary only thinks about herself and about how this affects her life, well, she's probably not going to be very excited about it. Who would be? Who would be excited about being ostracized for being a pregnant teenage mother who's not married? But rather than feeling sorry for herself, Mary takes a different perspective. Rather than just looking about how this affects her, she looks beyond herself. She considers it actually a joy and a privilege because she sees that this is something much bigger than just herself. This is something that God has been doing in history, that God is doing in the world. You know, for me and you, it's so easy to get focused on our own lives, on ourselves, how we feel, what's going on with us. And we can fail to see what's going on beyond ourselves. But Mary here, She's a good example of how important it is to look beyond ourselves and consider God's greater purposes in the world and how we can actually be a part of them. It might not always be easy. It might not be comfortable. There might even be sacrifice or inconvenience involved in doing so. But God is involved in the world. and It's bigger than us in our individual lives. But we get to be a part of it. I love what the missionary David Livingston said. He was visiting England towards the end of his life and he had spent his life as a missionary in Africa. And he was invited to do a tour where he was speaking at different colleges uh, all over England. So at one of the colleges, he spoke about Africa and about his work there. And someone asked him afterwards, they said, uh, Dr. Livingston, how were you able to make such a great sacrifice? You know, to, to leave the comforts of England and basically give up your entire life for the sake of, of bringing the gospel to Africa. And David Livingston's response was classic. He said, sacrifice? I never made a sacrifice. 
It has been a privilege and a joy for me to spend these many years of my life bringing light into dark places. The only way that you can talk like that is if you can look beyond yourself, if you can see God's purposes, not just in your life, but in the world. It changes the way that you think about yourself. It changes the way you think about other people. Ultimately, it will change the way that you think and the way that you live. And that's what we see here happening with Mary. And finally, Mary talks about, she sings about God's sufficiency, especially in light of her insufficiency. See, Mary was acutely aware of the fact that in the eyes of the world, she's nobody. But she's overwhelmed by the realization that in God's eyes, she's somebody. And this is a major theme of the Bible, by the way, that God loves those who are the nobodies of the world, the, the people that others overlook. It says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Mary is blown away by this for, for this reason that out of all the universe, out of all the people out there, the eyes of God for some reason have fallen on her and he has chosen her and he has placed his love and his favor and his grace on her. And what she sings about in this song, it anticipates what Jesus would later say in the Beatitudes when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they will inherit the kingdom, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. In other words, blessed are those who admit that they are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt and starving. Because the first step in coming to God is humbling yourself before him and admitting that you don't have what it takes in and of yourself. That you need him admitting your insufficiency, and then glorying in his sufficiency, which he gives you. The more that you think that you have it all together, the less likely you will be to accept the grace of God. Here with Mary, we see her humbling herself before the Lord, admitting her insufficiencies, and glorying in God's sufficiency for her. So the way that Mary responds, as we, we conclude here, the way that she responds to the Christmas message is a model for us of how we ought to respond to the gospel ourselves. Mary heard this divine pronouncement that she was favored by God. Do you know that the same thing is true of you? That God's eyes have fallen on you and he has shown you favor. That's what the word grace means. It means undeserved, unmerited favor. He loves you and he offers you his grace, his unmerited favor. And the question for you today is this. How will you respond to that? How will you respond to the favor that God has shown you and what he has done for you? You know, for the rest of her life, Mary would always return to this moment in her mind. She would always come back to this moment. It would be like an anchor for her soul. When things were hard, when people said mean, cutting things to her, when she had moments of doubt and wondering if this was all really true, when she had those moments where she saw her son, Jesus, when she sees him being uh, beaten, crucified, struggling, and, and tortured, and, and dying, she would come back to this moment, this day, this divine pronouncement when the angel would say to her, God has chosen you, Mary. God has put this calling on your life. And this is who this child will be, the savior of the world. For the rest of her life, she would never forget this moment. It would be an anchor for her in the midst of the tumultuous years ahead. And in the, it says in chapter 2, I love this phrase, but it says that Mary, as she's taking in everything that's happening, you know, the shepherds coming, the angels singing, it says that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and she pondered them in her heart. In the same way, when you understand the gospel, this message of God's grace, when you understand that God loves you, that he has done everything to save you, he has placed his favor upon you, and that is why Jesus came, to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death that you should have died so that through him you can be saved. When you understand God's grace to you, it leads to a whole new way of believing. 
It, it leads to a whole new way of living. It leads to heartfelt response. And so will you respond to the Christmas message the way that Mary did, this incredible news? I encourage you to do that, to consider the message, to surrender your life, to pursue community with other believers, and to respond in word and in deed. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this great message of the gospel, this great truth of what you have done for us. Lord, thank you for your grace towards us. And Lord, may we revel in that. Lord, not in who we are and what we've done, but in who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that as we see this Christmas message today, Lord, as we see this announcement that the favor of God had come upon Mary, Lord, may we understand that your grace has come upon us. Lord, may we respond to it like Mary did. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.